Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 27th through Saturday, the 29th of February, feature guest conductor Hanno Lintu and violin soloist Pekka Quisisto. The program includes Finlandia by Sibelius, two works by Carl Nielsen, Violin Concerto and the Helios Overture, and the program ends with the Sibelius Symphony No. 5. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Carl Nielsen's Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 35 minutes. Nielsen's father, a house painter, played the violin. As a young boy, Carl worked earnestly to master his father's three-quarter size fiddle until the day he spotted an upright mahogany piano in his uncle's house. He marveled at the individual notes set, quote, in a long, shining row before my eyes. Not only could I hear them, I could see them, he later remembered. His romance with playing the violin cooled temporarily in favor of the piano with its great expanse of keys. But by the time he entered the Copenhagen Conservatory in 1884 as a scholarship student, the violin was his chosen instrument. After graduating two years later, he supported himself playing violin at the Tivoli Gardens, and in 1899, he joined the Royal Orchestra. Nielsen's earliest known composition, other than those he made up as a three-year-old by playing melodies on different sizes of logs from the woodpile outside his house, was a polka for violin. His father, never suspecting the direction his son's music would take, complained that it was too syncopated. Most of his first works were scored for string instruments. Even before entering the conservatory, he composed several string quartets, a violin sonata, and a duet for two violins, all remain unpublished. His official Opus One is A Little Suite for Strings, written in 1888. That same year, he also composed a string quintet. Then, in 1892, with hardly any experience writing for orchestra, Nielsen completed his first symphony. He had tried to compose a symphony in 1888, but gave up after one movement. Although the work is wild and uneven, one reviewer likened Nielsen to a child playing with dynamite, it reveals many of the hallmarks of the composer's mature and highly individual style, a driving rhythmic energy and an utterly original sense of harmonic progression, and suggests that Nielsen was a born symphonist. For the next three decades, as he slowly turned out five more symphonies, this appeared to be his ideal medium. Nielsen's Violin Concerto was composed immediately after his third symphony in 1911 when he was operating at the peak of his powers. In spirit and stature, it is a companion to the symphony, whose subtitle, Sinfonia Espansiva, does not imply great length. Each of Nielsen's six symphonies, like this concerto, lasts just over half an hour, but the outward growth of the mind's scope and the expansion of life that comes from it, in the words of Robert Simpson, one of the earliest writers to champion Nielsen's music. The concerto, composed during a visit to Edvard Grieg's home, is equally grand in conception, only more inward in temperament. This is the first concerto by a composer who initially showed little enthusiasm for the form. It remained his only concerto until near the end of his life when he planned a cycle of five, one apiece, for the members of the Danish Wind Quintet. 
He got no further than those for the flute and clarinet. Nielsen struggled to balance the virtuosity demanded by the concerto form with the substance inherent in symphonic thought. On the one hand, he wrote during composition, it should be, of course, be good music, but on the other hand, it would be senseless to write a concerto of all things and not consider the nature of the instrument. But that's where I get hung up, for I don't easily tolerate hackneyed passages. Nielsen's ambitious and imposing solution satisfies both concerns. The soloist, who commands our attention from the cadenza-like opening measures, enjoys all the benefits of a traditional showpiece, including big lyrical tunes and brilliant fireworks. The composer in Nielsen knew very well how to satisfy his own instincts as a performer without lapsing into empty or hackneyed passage work. But in its thematic development, tonal scheme, and formal plan, the concerto continues to explore the ideas that give Nielsen's symphonies their idiosyncratic power. On paper, Nielsen's design looks highly unconventional. Two long movements, each divided into a slow introduction, followed by a longer, fast section. In essence, Nielsen's first movement is no more than a very spacious introduction to a large sonata allegro marked Allegro Cavalleresco, chivalrous gallantly, complete with a cadenza and a speedy, dazzling coda. The second part of the concerto dovetails a brief, spare, slow movement and a spirited rondo finale capped again by the obligatory cadenza. Nielsen's long, demanding, idiomatic cadenzas reveal the extent of his training as a violinist. Like most of his and several of Mahler's symphonies, Nielsen's violin concerto does not end in the key with which it begins. Although Nielsen sets the first movement in G major, the very opening promises G minor, the concerto concludes triumphantly in D major. The strategy of this so-called progressive tonality is that the conflict between the keys and the ultimate journey away from the home base creates the drama of the piece. As Simpson writes, Nielsen believed that a sense of achievement is best conveyed by the firm establishment of a new key, in contrast to the policy of composers from Bach to Shostakovich. Nielsen's violin concerto has taken even longer than his symphonies to find an audience. Even today, when the symphonies are at last played with some regularity, the concerto is still rarely encountered. From the beginning, it was regularly criticized. The two movements weren't well matched. The ending was a letdown. During the last several pages, the music scarcely rises above a whisper, except for the final fortissimo chord, while other equally unconventional works found a place in the repertory. Nielsen finally lost patience. We might perhaps say that the first movement is more lively and full of temperament, but is it better music? I think not, and I took special pains to emphasize in the rondo that the milieu has now changed, and the very end renounces everything that might dazzle or impress. It seems to me that this is expressed as clearly as possible. It would have been an easy matter to finish brilliantly, but, well, it may have been stupid of me. At the end of his life, Nielsen grew increasingly bitter that his music was so often misunderstood and that he had failed to attract international attention. 
Although he died greatly loved in his homeland, his funeral was a big public event, like Verdi's, his name meant little outside of Denmark until the 1950s. Only in recent years, particularly following the centenary of his birth in 1965, has he been recognized as one of the great rugged individualists of the 20th century. The Violin Concerto is one of the last of his masterworks to come to light. Program notes by Philip Husher on Carl Nielsen's Violin Concerto. And now, on to Sibelius's Symphony No. 5, a work lasting about 31 minutes. On the evening of his 50th birthday, Sibelius conducted the Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra in the world premiere of his Fifth Symphony. The eagerly awaited new work had been commissioned as the centerpiece of a concert organized in Sibelius's honor as Finland's greatest composer. The audience reception that night was enthusiastic, in response to the occasion, perhaps, more than the symphony. Sibelius had pushed himself to get the score done in time. He was still making changes during the final rehearsal, and his relief at meeting the deadline quickly gave way to a growing dissatisfaction with the music itself. No other composition gave Sibelius as much trouble as his Fifth Symphony. He mentioned the work for the first time in his diary as early as 1912. In late September 1914, he jotted these words in a notebook, "'In a deep valley again.'" but I already begin to see dimly the mountain that I shall certainly ascend. God opens his door for a moment, and his orchestra plays the Fifth Symphony. But God's orchestra would have to wait another five years for Sibelius to finish the score. Sibelius was normally a prodigious worker, juggling several compositions at once, but this symphony became the consuming project of the wartime years. The original version of the Fifth Symphony, the one Sibelius introduced on his 50th birthday, was divided into four movements. The manuscript has been lost, and the score pieced together from the surviving orchestral parts. Almost immediately after the premiere, Sibelius realized that this was a structural miscalculation, since the second movement, a scherzo, was based on the same material as the first. He then compressed the two into a single sonata form structure, with the scherzo serving as a recapitulation that sheds new light on familiar matters. In its revised form, the Fifth Symphony was introduced in December 1916, one year and six days after the premiere. But Sibelius was still dissatisfied and recalled the work again. Only the double bass part from the 1916 version survives. Sibelius was now working at a higher level of self-criticism. Every day, he formulated and refined ideas that would contribute not only to his fifth, but to his sixth and seventh symphonies as well. In a letter dated May 20, 1918, he commented that, It looks as though I may come out with all three symphonies at the same time. He continued, The fifth symphony, in a new form, practically composed anew. I work at it daily. The next month, he wrote to Axel Karpelan, a longtime source of spiritual and financial aid, that he had finished the fifth at last, though that proved premature. Finally, on November 24, 1919, Sibelius introduced the Fifth Symphony in the form we know today. The sixth didn't appear until 1923. The seventh came out a year later. Sibelius gave up on sketches for an eighth symphony. After completing Tapiola, his last composition in 1926, he withdrew into a 30-year silence, as tantalizing as the famous long pauses that divide the final chords of the Fifth Symphony. 
at the moment he died on September 20, 1957, in a retirement home in Yerevenpa, the orchestra in nearby Helsinki was performing his fifth symphony. No two of Sibelius's seven symphonies are alike. The predominant family trait, it seems, is that each symphony is most different from the preceding one. All seven offer individual approaches to the central questions of symphonic thought. Each one inhabits a world all its own. The very sounds that open the Fifth Symphony, quietly unfolding horn calls over a timpani roll, mark it as distinctly as the racing heartbeat that starts Mozart's G minor symphony, or the heroic E-flat chord in the first measure of Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. Ironically, in the original version of Sibelius's symphony, this motto comes only at the end of the first musical paragraph. The shape of the first movement, which began life as two, is wholly original. The seam doesn't show. It's very cannily woven, and the surrounding material has been completely recomposed. At the movement's end, one wonders how music that began in such a genial and leisurely mood grew imperceptibly to such a dizzying frenzy. The entire structure is taut and concentrated, forging musical phrases, sentences, and finally entire paragraphs out of a few opening words, the reverse of normal symphonic development. There are few passages in music as thrilling and suspenseful as the second half of this movement, with its pace growing steadily faster and faster, essentially an accelerando sustained over five minutes like a Hitchcock chase. The slow movement is a set of variations which takes its subject not from the opening wind theme, but from an insistent rhythmic pattern, two groups of five quarter notes divided by a quarter rest, introduced by the low strings. Sibelius writes several quite different melodies, all sharing the same rhythm. Throughout the movement, the urgently rhythmic music and spacious, lazy wind chords coexist almost oblivious of each other. The music draws its strength and peculiar character from the union of two such seemingly incompatible forces. The finale is grand, physical, and visionary. It has an extraordinary sense of great speed and stasis at the same time and suggests music from different spheres moving together through space. Sibelius begins with a rush of furious activity in the strings. A swaying horn theme begins to toll. Strands of melody pass by. Everything moves toward a great climax, which is achieved by a monumental slowing of the tempo and a melodic tangle followed by a great Silence. On the last page of the score, Sibelius writes six large chords with wide open spaces around them. We hang on each one, uncertain of the next. They are like the final lines of a great book that has kept us up all night and holds us spellbound to the very last word. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Sibelius's Symphony No. 5. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.